people attempt to build and grow churches. You'll, you'll see a couple of these uh, that will show up here on the, on the PowerPoint. That You can double your church attendance overnight was, was one, if you can look at that. Or there's what's called a 90-minute evangelistic outreach. That's all it takes is to do that. How to how uh, plant growing churches or how to, how to uh, attract outsiders to anticipate growth of biblical proportions. And by that, I presume they mean the, the growth that we have seen uh, illustrated in the book of Acts where 3,000 were added in one day. Or are you a small church? How you can become a big church? There's church growth seminars. Or here's the cartoon, if you can see it. Next one, if you rotate to that. Keep going. Yep. How to, how to have a, a growing church, and that's better coffee. So that's the church, church growth model. Now, I know you have coffee afterwards, I think, don't you? Uh, I hope it's really good coffee today, so that will help your church growth. You understand I'm being a bit facetious. I, I, I want you to think with me. Look, look at just one verse, really, and this message is... Uh, at least two parts. I'll give you the first part today, depending on how far I am able to go. But look with me at verse 33. Uh, just for a moment, ponder, and what word sticks out to you in Acts 4:33? It's the repeated word in the text. Great power, great grace. Great power, and great grace. That's really what we're going to talk about this morning. You see, any church, be it a first century church that we find here in the city of Jerusalem, or even Northridge Baptist Church here on 6th Avenue in Des Moines, may be a great church by God's power and God's grace. It's not tricks. It's not uh, human manipulation of people. It's rather being people that have the sense of God's great power and God's great grace. So let's look at this just in two parts. And like I said, there's more to follow. I have a whole message after this. I thought it would be better if I split it up uh, both for your patience and my time. And so that would be helpful to you. Let's look at a church, a great church with a powerful ministry. You'll notice in Acts Acts 4.31, they were all filled with the Holy Spirit. And they spoke the word of God with boldness. I, I, I want you to make the simple link that when you are filled with the Holy Spirit, that there will naturally be the presence of boldness in speech about Christ. So if you'll think with me about that, if we are not bold in witness for Christ, it may be because we are not <clears throat> full of the Holy Spirit. So just make that simple note in your mind, here was a church that was full of the Holy Spirit. Of course, you can look at the text and be able to see earlier that Acts 2-4, that the Holy Spirit descended upon them and formed the church, the body of Christ. And he formed the body of Christ in that he came and indwelt the church. He lived within the church, within believers. You'll find it here in Acts chapter Four. Just turn the page back with me. Peter, verse 8, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them. So there's the presence of the Spirit. And so 
throughout the text, whether it be Acts 4a, Acts 4.31, Acts 6.3, Acts 6.5, Acts 6.8, there's, there's all kind of reference to the imprint of the Spirit of God upon this church. You see, this was the work of the Spirit of God to form what was called the body of Christ. Now you understand, I think, uh, you are fairly well taught here. You know exactly what this means. This is different than what was true in Israel because now God would take from Jew and Gentile, from bond and free, from men and women, and form them by the work of the Spirit into what he calls later the body of Christ. This is a mystery. It's different than Israel. God doing his work previously in and through a country, a nation named Israel. But now it's going to be different how God will do his work in the world, and that would be through the body of Christ. Not made of an ethnic entity, but rather now from multiple uh, ethnic identities, from men and women, bond and free, and they have all been made to drink of one spirit, the, the, the Holy Spirit forming that very body of Christ. I again will remind you it was the Spirit that filled them and gave them boldness. And I, I think it's important to remember that, uh, that we're talking at least primarily here, though not exclusively, about the man named Peter who, when asked by a little servant girl, aren't you, aren't you uh, a follower of Christ? Uh, your, your accent betrays you. And, and before a young servant girl, girl, he denied Christ. But now, being full of the Spirit, he is bold in his witness for Christ. It was the Spirit of God that enabled them to heal the diseased man. And that authenticated the, 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 the message of the risen Christ. And so you'll read in Acts 4.33, with great power, the apostles gave witness to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus from the dead. Uh, the Spirit of God was present. Now, we'll, we'll look at this very specifically this morning, but you must ask yourselves if God will make Northridge Baptist Church what he desires this church to be, it must be filled full of the Holy Spirit full of the presence of Christ in the presence of the Spirit of God. Now see, secondly, that the Spirit of God was transforming people. This was a great church where God the Spirit was at work transforming the lives of people. He turned a lame beggar uh, who was poverty-stricken into one who walked and leapt and praised God. Whereas before, when he begged at the gate to the temple, never was the name of Christ on his lips, but, but now he spoke of Christ. You see, cowardly followers like Peter, who had followed Christ, now spoke boldly of the gospel of the risen Christ. And that even in the face of serious threat. They had been with Jesus and they had been transformed by him. Let your mind go back to Acts 4.13. They took knowledge of them that they had been with Jesus, that they had been transformed by the presence of the Spirit of God. The Holy Spirit, you see, made this church great. Now, I would remind you, I only give this in the briefest fashion possible, I remind you that the Holy Spirit is God. 
we did not plan that, but I'm glad that Sean picked holy, holy, holy. God in three persons, blessed Trinity. God the Father, God the Son, and God the Spirit, one in essence, three in person. And so the Holy Spirit is God. He is further the Spirit of truth. He is, you'll remember, the uh, divine comforter. And uh, that's the John 14, 15, and 16 passage where Jesus says, it's really important that I go away because if I don't go away, I will not be able to send another comforter. So he is this divine comforter. He is the very, I think, he is the very presence of Christ by himself in the lives of believers. He is another comforter. I also think that he is the silent one. He doesn't ever speak of himself. I think the modern charismatic movement is indicted, if only by the fact that for many within that movement, it's all about the Spirit. It's the Spirit this, the Spirit that. Do you know the Holy Spirit is wonderfully delighted when he is never noted, but rather only Christ is noted. He never speaks of himself. He always speaks of Christ. And so he amplifies the redemptive work of God the Father through Christ. Never does he speak of Jesus, but rather always points uh, to Christ. And then, fifth, would you see that he is the personal power of God present in the lives of believers in the church. So when it says that, for example, when uh, I think it's Galatians 2.20, I'm crucified with Christ, nevertheless I live yet, not I, but, but Christ lives in me. How does Christ live in me? And I would suppose that he lives in me by the personal presence of the Holy Spirit. This is the personal power of God present in the lives of believers in the church. Now, time does not permit me to do it, but I would, I would uh, uh, help you remember that not only are individual believers indwelt by the Holy Spirit, but I think if you read 1 Corinthians 3 properly, that every truly constituted local church is indwelt by the Holy Spirit. A little while ago, uh, Pastor Jim took me around uh, really, it was the first opportunity I had to walk through uh, every part of the facility here. And so I went down even, I think it's the old cistern. We, we, I saw where the old cistern is down, downstairs. Uh, you might ask yourself, well, where does God live at Northridge Baptist Church? Does he, does he live in some, may, maybe up in the cell phone tower? Or maybe, I, I, I'm not sure, I didn't see God if you will, when I took that tour. Because God does not so much reside in the building, but I do want you to know that in the collective identity called Northridge Baptist Church that the Holy Spirit indwells the church. He indwells the church, and when he indwells the church, that he will make a remarkable impact, indelible impact upon the church. God was making this early church great, both individually and collectively. It's filled with the Spirit. And you see, today, 
churches are built, we seem to see, based upon the great personality of the preacher, upon charisma, upon using business technique, upon everything that might come down the pike by way of human wisdom, but we are we, we must remember that in order for God to make any church great, he will turn ordinary people and an ordinary church into a great church by the presence of the Spirit of God. And when I use the term great, I'm not necessarily talking about size. I'm not talking about fame. I'm talking about a church that matches what God describes of a church and a church that is that, that is insistently and aggressively and fruitfully making disciples in its community. That is a great church, no matter its size, no matter its reputation. Northridge Baptist Church can be and must be a great church as it reaches its community in making disciples for Christ when you are full of the Spirit of God. That's what makes a great church. It is essential that we be filled with the Spirit of God. Now, whenever I mention, and Pastor Jim has taught on this, and I, and I, I, I think that our thoughts will be largely in sync, but I'm going I'm to try to demystify the filling of the Holy Spirit. So I, I, want you to, I want you to think with me about, for example, is it a feeling? I, I want you to understand that there are many times where I am full of the Spirit, but I don't feel anything. Matter of fact, there are many occasions where I don't feel well at all, but I'm full of the Spirit. So, so it's, it's not a mystical thing. I think it's clearly identified, and I want to take you very quickly to three texts. Uh, and just to, that if these things are true, that it could be said of you that you are full of of the Spirit, that you are filled with the Spirit. So turn with me to 1 Thessalonians 5.19. It's one of those little bulleted uh, verses that Paul gives at the end of that first epistle to the Thessalonians. 1 Thessalonians 5.19. And probably, it's one of those verses you didn't realize you'd, you'd memorized, right? And it says, quench not the Spirit. Don't quench the Spirit. To be filled with the Spirit means that we are not quenching the Holy Spirit. Now, even if we could be informal, what, what would be a synonym uh, for quench? Can you, can you give me some similar words to quench? Okay, to extinguish. We would even talk about quenching thirst. It, it, it extinguishes thirst. To douse, to put out, to thwart, to hinder, uh, whatever word you can use there. And, and I think largely we quench the spirit by pride or by selfishness. If I am humble before God and I am selfless before God, quite literally, God can tell me to do anything, and nothing is beneath me in life or service for God. Um, now, the last few days, some of you have probably seen it in the news, uh, at John Deere, the UAW is on strike. 
So they want me to honk my horn at them to give them support. And I, I, I'm, I'm neither pro-management nor pro-union. I have been tempted. I have not done this to fake them out like I'm going to punch my horn but then not do it. <laughs> uh, but uh, the whole idea of if you've ever worked for, uh, for a union before and the UAW, you work for, let's see, you work for a union, right? There are some tasks that quite literally in a union you can't do because it's beneath your pay grade. Now, in life with Christ, nothing is beneath our pay grade. And it's not as if God tells me to do this and I say, well, that's, I, I, that's undignified of me to do that. To be full of the Spirit is to say... God, I don't want to quench your spirit by any presence of pride. For example, how would pride be evidenced in the life of a Christian? Just think through that. How would pride be evidenced? I can remember trying to teach my oldest daughter. I think she may have been four or five. This was pre-Velcro days, by the way. You know, when you when you buy shoes for little kids, most of them have Velcro now, so it delays the, the process of learning how to tie shoes. Uh, and so my daughter, we were teaching her how to tie her shoes, but she knew how to do it. And she insisted, no, Dad, I know how to do it. When she really didn't know how to do it, she was independent and full of pride, and I think to this day, she finally figured out a way to tie her shoes, but it's not the right way. It's kind of an oddball way because she, it, there was, you get the sense of a... Uh, it's, it's Dennis the Menace, the cartoon I have in my file somewhere that he turns around. He's sitting in the corner speaking to his mom. He says, I'm sitting on the outside, but I'm standing on the inside. You, you get the idea of pride or of... Uh, selfishness. Um, Sean, are your children ever selfish? Now, don't, we don't want any examples today, but are any of your children ever selfish at all? Oh, never. Not, none of the yeah, Kellys are. <laughs> Do big people ever get selfish? We become only more sophisticated in our selfishness. <laughs> you try to cover it. You see, don't quench the spirit. Don't quench the spirit by pride or by selfishness. Turn to Hebrews, or excuse me, Ephesians chapter 4. Again, a verse that you didn't realize you memorized, uh, this, at least the first part of it. And it says, I think quoting uh, the King James, Grieve not the Holy Spirit of God, by whom you are sealed to the day of redemption. Maybe while you're there, go ahead and keep looking. Let all bitterness, anger, wrath, clamor, evil speaking be put away from among you with all malice, and be kind one to another. So generally, I would say, don't grieve the Holy Spirit by the presence of any sin. That's even illustrated in Ephesians 4, uh, 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 30 and 31. Bitterness, anger, wrath, clamor, evil speaking, malice. 
the absence of kindness. Don't grieve the Spirit of God by any sin, large or small. It is impossible to be, to be filled with the Spirit when there is the presence of the practice of sin in our lives. Thirdly, would you please see that to be filled with the Spirit, Galatians 5.16, you could turn to. Walk in the Spirit, and you will not fulfill the lusts of the flesh. For the flesh lusts against the Spirit, and the Spirit against the flesh. These are contrary the one to the other, so that you cannot do the things that you would. Walk with the Spirit. So here is our third idea of being filled with the Spirit, to demystify being filled with the Spirit. Walk in the Spirit. Enjoy His presence. Listen to His Word. Follow Him in obedience. Be in companionship with the Spirit. The filling of the Holy Spirit, demystified, is the following. Don't put out His ministry by selfishness or by pride. Don't allow sin to be present in your life. And of course, when God, by the Spirit of God, or maybe through a preacher, maybe through a Sunday school class, maybe through interaction, one-on-one with another person, you realize that you've sinned, what must you immediately do? You must confess your sin, knowing that God is faithful and just to forgive us our sins. Uh, Debbie and I have been married, we're in our 46th year of marriage. Hard to believe, I don't, I know I don't look that old, maybe. <laughs> You're saying, oh, you, you do, don't worry about it. <laughs> uh, I, I can't, in 46 years, I can't tell you how many times I've offended my wife, and I've had to come to my wife and say, Debbie, I'm sorry, my, my words were not kind, they were not helpful to you, they had an edge to them. It's not your fault. It's my fault. That, that was, that's on me. Please forgive me. I mean, I've had to do that repeatedly. Uh, how, how much more is it with God? And, and if we took the, the adage of the psalmist who said, Search me, O God, know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts and see if there is any wicked way in me. Do you think if you gave God the invitation, okay, we're just... No improvements, you've got to stop right now. You're going to open up your life totally to God and say, God, if you can find anything wrong in my life, tell me. It would be like me going to the dentist. You do what I do when I go to the dentist. Just recently I went to the dentist for my, for my annual or semi-annual cleaning. And I did what everybody does before you go to the dentist. What do you do? You brush your teeth more thoroughly than you ever have in your life. And you floss and you do all kinds of things. And so then you sit in the chair and the dental hygienist gets there and do they find anything at all to clean out of your mouth? All kinds of crud and filth. I I grew up in the day where they didn't use those vacuum things they use now where you had to rinse and spit in the bowl. And so when you rinsed and spit in the bowl and it went down the drain, you saw, ooh, look at all that stuff that was in my mouth. If, if you ask God, God, please point out to me where there is sin in my life. I think he'd find a few things. And so 
don't grieve God by the presence of sin. You, you'll be full of the Spirit. And then walk with the Spirit. Be His companion. Uh, follow His Word. Enjoy His presence. And this first century church was great because it was filled with a great God. This first century church, and I would say Northridge Baptist Church, no matter its size, may be a great church when it is filled with God. Now, just to pause, and I've been a pastor long enough to know, and of course I pastor uh, Ankeny Baptist Church, doing my part-time gig here. Um, in, in local churches, are there private agendas ever? Do people get their nose bent out of shape because, well, they didn't pay attention to me. And we weren't noticed. I recently had to go through an event where quite literally I was placed on the sideline in a role where normally I would have been front and center. So during that brief occasion, I had to say, am I going to allow my, my feelings to be hurt or will I simply accept this as what God desires for this moment in this day, to be put on the sideline for a moment? See, local churches are great when they're filled with a great God, when we don't quench the Spirit, when we don't allow the presence of any sin in our life. And I would suggest to you, if it has been a long time since you've honestly and personal communion with God, confessed any sin, then it's likely that there are issues that you need to deal with. Uh, it, it just is very common that God brings to my attention. Here's some things that we can, we, we can really tighten up on. To not have any presence of sin and to walk with the Spirit. But let me move to the second thing in the few moments that I have left. Uh, the first century church was a great church with great grace. And you'll find it in that text, verse 33, and great grace was upon them all. Now, at, at, uh, I've been at Ankeny Baptist Church for 23 years, and they have heard this many times. This is the first time you've ever heard this, but I want to expand your thinking, and I'll have to deal with this very briefly this morning and expand upon it next week. But I want you to think, the words literally are, it's the word we get mega from. There's mega grace was upon them. I mean, the superabundance of God's grace. So, when you think of grace, what one word? Now, only one word comes to mind. And I do expect an answer here. What one word comes to mind? No, that would be the adjective. I want the noun. Favor or kindness. And now, the two-word definition that we've commonly used. The unmerited favor of God. It is undeserved. And so God's giving unmerited kindness to sinners. And then I would thirdly remind you, and I am severely condensing a number of ideas, it is the grace of God that is best illustrated and manifested in the person Jesus Christ. Or as you have it on your outline there, it is kindness, unmerited kindness given to sinners in the life and death of the one full of grace and truth. Uh, 
I'll perhaps, as I have opportunity, deal more with this next week. But I would want you perhaps later to look at John chapter 1. The word was made flesh, verse 14, and dwelt among us, and we beheld his glory, the manifestation of the character of God, and what was he full of? Grace and truth. If you want to know what grace is, then look at Jesus. Look at Calvary. Because that's the best manifestation of the unmerited favor of God to sinners. But then I want you to see further. Because I don't think that Acts 4.33 is talking about when the people got saved. When they first looked at Christ and trusted him. He rather says right now, God's great grace was present upon them. And so, fourth, grace is the unmerited kindness given to sinners not only at Calvary and not only in salvation, but also in contemporary life according to our need. And I I, uh, will only mention these, and again, perhaps I, I can do this in coming days. 2 Corinthians 12, remember that passage where Paul has a thorn in the flesh? And three times with great drama, he comes into God's presence and says, God, take this away. I cannot possibly live or serve any longer unless you take this thorn away from me. Different people have different ideas as to what that thorn in the flesh might be. We, We don't know. It was evidently so difficult that it brought Paul into paralysis. I mean, quite literally, he says, I can't, I can't move or flinch. And so you've got to take it away. And guess what God told him? No. I'm not going to take it away. Reason why is my grace is sufficient for you. So grace is not merely past tense for the day that you first got saved. It's contemporary right now in that it meets my momentary need. So much so that Paul could say, I glory in my infirmity, so that the, and notice what he says, that grace now he calls the power of Christ. It's the power of Christ right now. So, so here's Northridge Baptist Church. And I do want to make this rather, and I trust you'll grant me this, Opportunity. Northridge Baptist Church had a rather precarious moment in its life and history. Can God give you grace, that is the power of Jesus Christ right now, to be and become the church that God could have you be? Answer is yes. Because God's power, the, the grace of God, is ample in meeting our momentary need, and will do so in, in quantities that we cannot even imagine. That's why in this text he says that great grace was upon them, the great momentary ministry by the Spirit of God, giving them the power of Christ to be bold in witness for Christ, to be fruitful in life for Christ, to resist the edict, to be quiet about Christ, to... to to cease being distinctive in life for Christ. What great grace, the power of God, was upon them. I'm a little tired this morning, so I'm going to sit, if I may. Is that okay? Good. I, I often sit on my front stoop getting ready. I mostly bike now. Yesterday I biked 
15 hard miles, and it was my, my body was not cooperating. I was just kind of tired. And I know I need to exercise because I have my, my father's uh, tendency to have high cholesterol. He, he used to say he didn't need to eat bacon to have his cholesterol high. He just had to smell it, and his cholesterol spiked. That's me. And so I have to regularly exercise to keep my weight down, to keep my cholesterol down. But it's often that I sit on my, on my, on my, on my garage steps and I say, I don't have either the, the desire or the power to exercise today. Philippians 2, if you want to turn to it, I'll finish with this. Excuse my informality here at the end. I've not done this with you, so I'll try to illustrate this for you. Philippians 2, 13 it is. 12 and 13. Work out your own salvation with fear and trembling, is how the latter part of that verse says. But I, it's... You are like me in that you're like me sitting on my stoop saying, I know I should do something, but I have no power to do it. I am just plumb tuckered out. I'm too tired. I'm too ugly. Metaphorically speaking. And yet, do you see the next... But what I have to do when I'm biking is, okay, I've got to pull on my biking shoes, tighten them up, Got to put on, always wear a helmet, put on my helmet. I got to grab my bike off the rack. And no matter how I feel, I put my bicycle shoes in my pedal clips and I start. And guess what happens? Well, this is not as bad as I thought. Because it is God who works in me both to will and to do. He'll give me the desire and the power to do what when I sit on my stoop I don't I don't want to and I'm weak. So God says to you, here here's some people that I desperately want to reach for Christ and you need to speak to them. And you say, I don't want to and I'm afraid. But what you do is you put on your gospel bike shoes and you say, I I will in faith obey. And guess what happens? God gives you the desire and the power to do as well. That's grace. It's God giving you his current provision to meet your momentary need. What makes a great church, folks? It's a it's a humble, simple church family, be it Northridge Baptist Church or Ankeny Baptist Church, that will sit on their stoop and say, we are weak. I'm not sure I even have the desire. But I'm going to do this. Because God will give me great grace. He'll give me both the desire and power to do His will. And, and do you again see the text? He says, with great boldness, they gave testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ from the dead. Great grace was upon them. That's exactly what I need, folks. 
And I don't know if you've noticed, whether it be personally, in your family, or in your church, you need God's great grace that not only is what God manifested in Christ at Calvary, but it's what he manifests today in all of your weakness, that great grace will be upon you. So, Father, as we have gathered today, may Christ be honored. We thank you for the Savior. And I do pray that you would make Northridge Baptist Church a great church, that they would be full of the Spirit of God and that your grace would be upon them in abundant measure. We pray this together in Jesus' name. Amen.